the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. Hope you weathered all of the storms. And I know I can count on this audience to be praying for our brothers and sisters in the Houston area who are experiencing traumatic devastation. It's just hard to imagine. It's one of those things that all we can do is continue to pray and and uh, wait, just wait for the things to pass. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions today. 340-9585, that's what this program is all about. And I wanted to give you the numbers right at the beginning. Last week was a really slow week for phone calls. And remember, the program is always better when you are involved. You can also call from outside the local area at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send them in via our free mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the KSLR free mobile app and just hit the call now button with your hands-free device and you will be instantly connected to our studio. It was an interesting weekend, I'm sure, for you as well. Um, you know, your heart is heavy because of all the things that are going on and yet you get a chance to be with the Lord's people. Uh, attendance was way down yesterday. The news did a pretty good job of trying to keep people in their homes. I could never figure out why because we hardly got any rain here at all in San Antonio. But that's just what happens when, when, uh, when people sort of panic a little bit. Um, so we had a, a smaller crowd yesterday, about half of what we normally have on a Sunday. Uh, but we were here, um, great, not because I did it, but just a great passage of Scripture uh, in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 8. Um, people got saved yesterday. That's a good thing. So we end the month. Uh, one other thing for us yesterday, it was sort of sad. Um, uh, the lead drummer in our, our worship team, has been with us seven years. His wife joined us a couple of years later um, when when he was military was having him stay here. And he's been with us seven years and, and we're saying goodbye to him yesterday was uh, their last Sunday. And so Brandon and Amy, if you're still in town and you're listening, we're, we're going to miss you a great deal. These are two people that came in serving. They walked out serving. They never stopped impacting people's lives. They were just an absolute delight to be around. And then at the end of service, there was another couple who I thought had another um, week here with us um, at the end with tears in his eyes and tears in my, eye, my eyes. Lauren and Justine told me that, that, that this was their last Sunday as well. Uh, we hope to get them here one day this week so we can pray for them as well before the church body. But uh, same thing, they're, they're family. They, they have grown so much. We have watched them uh, fall in love with each other and marry and have be three beautiful children. Uh, it's just one of those really, really neat things that that uh, we get to experience. But, oh, are the goodbyes difficult. The goodbyes are so very, very difficult. 
Before we get to some questions and go to phone calls, we want to let you know just a reminder that uh, our men's and women's and youth Bible studies, for those of you who watch online, uh, are are off until September 11th. We always take a break to let people get their school schedule back in order. Uh, So September 11th, Paula will be teaching uh, and then beginning in the book of 1 Peter, uh, Pastor Ken and Pastor Nelly for the high school age youth will be uh, starting on the same day. Okay. 340-9585. Let's go to one of my very favorites, Tanya in San Leandro, California. Tanya, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Are you there, Tanya? We got some technical difficulties with Tanya, evidently. Um, Pastor Ron, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I have a question for you, sir. And I thought, I mean, I have a million questions. I could take up your whole show with all the questions that I have, but um, <laughs> I want, want to give other people a chance to call. So um, I had a, a question, and, and I would like to see if I could get a better way of explaining. When we talk about Jesus being throughout the entire Bible, you know, um, when it starts with the angel of the Lord, what proof do we have? I, I, and I encountered encountered this question, and I realized at the end of the day I really couldn't give as much biblical background to state that Jesus is referenced as the angel of the Lord. Now, I know like Gabriel and Michael, when people would try to bow to them, they would say, no, no, you don't bow to us. Um, So is there something that I'm missing when it comes to explaining that Jesus is, in fact, mentioned as is the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? Good question, Tanya. I can do that. Thank you very, very much. Um, a couple of things. Let, let me let me begin by recommending a book. Uh, a book by Dr. Ron Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S. And the book is called Christ Before the Manger. Uh, it's not difficult reading. It's interesting. But it talks about all of the Old Testament appearances of Jesus and why we know those were uh, appearances of Jesus and not just ordinary angels. And Tanya, it centers around really the fact that they worshipped uh, um, Abraham, uh, worshipped him by offering a tenth of the spoils of victory uh, to Melchizedek. We know that was uh, Jesus in, in pre-incarnate form. But we also know that all of the other appearances, whether it was to Samson's parents or to Gideon or to to uh, others uh, in, in Genesis 18, uh, when Jesus and the two destroying angels uh, came to talk with him about the impending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that it was Jesus because there's a um, there's always worship involved. Uh, there's also the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. This is just basic hermeneutics. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament uh, is is a definite article. Uh, when we're talking about an angel of the Lord, uh, whether it's Gabriel or Michael or, or any of the others, there's no definite article. They're identified by name, but just the angel of the Lord, that definite article, uh, is a hermeneutic that demands that we interpret that as Jesus. Now, the most compelling um, um, evidence we have um, uh, is from John chapter 12, referring to Isaiah's vision of God. John chapter 12, I think it's verse 23, Tanya, but I'm not looking at it right now. It's going to be in the, the, toward the end of the chapter there. Um, John tells us very specifically, obviously writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus or that Isaiah saw Jesus. And Jesus has always been the way that the God of heaven was revealed to mankind, pre-incarnation and post-incarnation. Isaiah, pre-incarnation, saw Jesus. Moses, we know, saw Jesus and heard his voice in the the, the burning bush. Moses asked for the uh, glory of God to, to, to be visible to him, and, and Jesus, the afterglow, the backside of Jesus' glory. Uh, went by, so we know it, it, it's 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 not something that we can say. Okay, this verse, except for the John passage, this is how we know for sure the Bible says. But but it's just basically studying the Bible, um, having a good solid hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is the the science of interpretation of literature. In this case, a hermeneutic for biblical interpretation demands that we see those things. That's the consistency, Tanya, and it's really really important. So the book is uh, Christ Before the Manger. Uh, Dr. John Rhodes, and I'm just being told, I think it's John 12:41, not 12:23. So thank you for that. 
So, Tanya, I hope that helps. It's always good to hear from you, praying for you and your family. Your picture stays on my prayer board. You're like three-quarters of the way up on the right center, and I've got that beautiful picture of you and your family there, and so you get prayed for continually. God bless you, and you can call with questions anytime. 340-9585, I just remembered, I didn't tell you who I am and what we're doing. I'm Pastor Ron Harbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I was so thinking about Houston and the, the scenes that we've been seeing there, uh, and we would love for you to participate in this program. Okay, let's go to some questions that have been sent in. Here's a question from Nacho from our mobile app. He says, Pastor Ron, can I use 1 Corinthians 1.17 to make the point that you do not need to be baptized to be saved? Why do some believe that you must be baptized to be saved? Nacho, let me read 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul's writing about his own mission. He said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, I think even more compelling uh, than that are the verses that um, come before that, beginning in verse 14. Remember, now, in Corinth, there was a lot of dissension. There were some of of the Corinthian believers who said, no, I'm of of Paul, I'm of Peter. Others would say, I'm of Apollos. And then the super spiritual types say, I don't listen to any man, I just listen to Jesus. And so Paul, in addressing this this division, he says in verse 14 in 1 Corinthians 1, I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized into my name. And he makes the point that his ministry there was not baptizing people at all, but to proclaim the gospel. People got saved as he proclaimed the gospel. Baptism, not sure, was a result of salvation. It's very important we understand that. Uh, and then in verse 16, he says, oh, and this is in parentheses, yes, I also baptized household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Now, if baptism was a requirement of salvation, of course Paul would have done that. Uh, baptism would have been the focus, but baptism doesn't save us. Believing we are saved by grace through faith, and that the faith, not of ourselves, it is the gift from God. That's how we're saved. And that was Paul's mission. If baptism was essential for salvation, Paul would have been preaching and dunking and preaching and dunking and preaching and dunking. Now, why do some people say that you have to be baptized to be saved? Because first, I'm sorry, uh, Acts, we just studied it. Uh, um, Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 38. That was Friday night study. Not the whole thing, but, but just Peter's message uh, on the first day of the church, the day we call Pentecost. Peter says when the Spirit falls and they're convicted of sin, they realize that Peter was right. They killed God. And now the Spirit's fallen and convicting them. And, and they say, well, well what, what do we do then? Brothers, what? do we do? And Peter said, and I always put the word easy in there, it's not in your text, but easy, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And he doesn't mean repent and be baptized and then you're saved. What he means is repent from your sin, get saved, and then get baptized as a result of being saved. You know, I always look at baptism like a um, like an aspirin. Um, you don't take an aspirin to get a headache. You take an aspirin because you have a headache. Well, the Greek is very clear in that passage of Scripture that you must be saved, and then baptism is the result, the first act of obedience, of being saved. Now, we also have to remember the Jewishness of that context. The first century church, and especially on the day of Pentecost, uh, Nacho was entirely Jewish. And so in a Jewish construct, baptism was a public declaration of their faith in God. That's why John's baptism was so important. That's why John was out there dunking people, um, getting them ready for the coming of the Messiah. But that baptism was just an acknowledgement that I'm a sinner and I need to prepare my heart for the coming of the Messiah. So that's what Jews did. When Jews got saved, they would be baptized, and that was a public declaration. Now, we get baptized not so much as a uh, instantly, but we also get baptized 2,000 years later 
uh, as our way of saying to the world that the old me is dead and there's a new me alive. We go down in the water, that's really a, a trip to your own funeral, spiritually speaking. You come up out of the water, it's like I, I'm, I'm, I'm identifying with Jesus' resurrection. There's a new me that's born again at this very moment. Um, it is a heresy to say that you need to be baptized to be saved. I don't believe it's a disqualifying heresy in the sense that if you believe that, you're not saved, not at all. But we all know churches here in this part of the country who insist on baptism um, uh, as a condition of salvation. Uh, we also know entire religions in our city of infant baptism. Um, th- those are things that are anti-biblical um, so that's why they believe it. They're wrong, but Nacho, that's why they believe it. Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Bill from our mobile app. He says, please explain the difference between God's sovereign will and his revealed will. I've also heard it referred to as his divine will and moral will. Are those the same? Uh, Bill, the difference between the, 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 the terms that you, you used uh, are simply uh, interpretation. Um, the, God has one will, his perfect, pleasing, acceptable will. That's not three wills, his perfect, pleasing, and acceptable will. Now, when we hear people say God's sovereign will, they throw in the big S word, the sovereign word. What they're saying is that God is dictating everything that happens, and everything that happens is his will. Uh, for example, the flood in Houston and all of the pain and all of the suffering that's going on there. Well, it's God's sovereign will that was going to happen. That's a misunderstanding of what God's will is all about. God didn't will there to be a flood. We live in a fallen world. Romans chapter 8, all of creation is groaning. I'm going to be studying that very passage this coming Sunday. And the hurricane is just one example of the groaning. I grew up in Southern California. And we had a lot of earthquakes, some of them pretty big. I've been in two uh, 7.2 or greater earthquakes. They're loud, and you can hear creation groaning. That's not God's will. It's just that they were subjected with the fall of mankind. So when you see God's sovereign will, it's sort of like blaming everything that happens on God because, well, God's in charge of all things. That's a misunderstanding. His revealed will, uh, Bill, is clear to all of us, we have it in his word. God's revealed will for our lives is in his word. So when we're obedient to his revealed will to us, then God leads us and takes us into what we learn is the rest of his will. Let me give you just an example of that. When I got saved, I was really excited about what God was going to do in my life. I, I knew within six months I was called to be a pastor even though I really didn't even know what a pastor did. I wasn't raised in church, so I didn't know all that stuff. But he'd spoken to my heart, and I was called to be a pastor. And from that moment forward, I did everything to pursue what I needed to pursue in order to become what God wanted me to become. Now, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I wouldn't have been able to hear God speak to my heart if I wasn't pursuing his revealed will in the Word of God. I think one of the problems a lot of us have, Bill, is that we want to, to know what God's long-term plan is for us without doing his today will. So God's revealed will is that which he will wants us today. Um, there should be no coarse jesting, no filthy language coming from your lips. Uh, husbands, love your wives, way Christ of the church, giving himself up for her. Um, uh, be kind and loving and gentle and patient. All those things forgive as you have been forgiven by God. That's God's revealed will for all of us. And basically, God, if you're not doing what is clearly revealed already to us, why would God share anything with you about a, a long-term will? So the way we find God's will for our lives is that we walk with him every day. We're obedient to what we do know. As we follow Jesus every day, we're led into something else that becomes clear is his perfect will for our lives. In my life, I knew I was called to be a pastor um, without even knowing what that was. Here I am uh, 26 years later, and I have the privilege of pastoring, uh, I think, the greatest group of people in the world. 
So you see, I walked into God's will without knowing what it was. Uh, Paul and I had never been to San Antonio. We didn't know anybody in Texas. And frankly, we didn't ever want to come to Texas. But when you follow Jesus one day at a time, one day down the road, you look up and you say, how did I get here? And Jesus just kind of smiles at you and said, hey, you followed me and this is where I was bringing you. So that's his revealed will and the the fruit that comes from being obedient. So God's sovereign will and his revealed will are not the same thing. And, and boy, our church culture really messes up the use of the word sovereign. His divine will and moral will, you can't separate God's moral will from his divine will because God is perfect and holy and just. So that's what we need to understand. Those things are not the same and... Uh, Pursuing his revealed will for our lives every day is really, Bill, the only thing that matters. So thank you for the question. I appreciate it. I hope that gives you a reasonable answer. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. Here is a question from our email inbox from AA. AA is a regular listener. Good to hear from you again. This is Pastor Ron. A series of questions. First, is there any difference between the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, and the fruit of righteousness, uh, as in Philippians chapter 1, verse 11? Now, the fruit of righteousness, uh, yeah, there is a difference. One deals with behavior. The fruit of the Spirit is behavior condition of the heart. The fruit of righteousness is simply the, the reward, the blessing we get from being made righteous with Christ. So the context of the two makes a difference. Now, honestly, a, the, the outworking of both will look very much the same. Uh, if I'm walking um, with Jesus, um, blessed because of his gift of righteousness given to me, then I'm going to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Um, those things are going to characterize my life. So um, the difference is behavior, and one is simply the opportunity to walk in God's will, the opportunity to demonstrate fruits of the Spirit. Without the fruit of righteousness in our lives, there's no possibility that we're ever going to uh, to be able to live a life demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. The Galatians 5 passage in A, you did not ask this, but that Galatians 5 passage, beginning in verse 19, which is sort of what I call the bad, bad fruit of the flesh, and then contrasting that with the fruit of the Spirit, that helps us to identify instantly what our behavior is. If I'm angry, if I'm despairing, if I'm being negative, if I'm uh, um, um, using foul language, I, you know, I'm, I'm not demonstrating at all fruits of the Spirit. And what that tells me is I'm either walking in the Spirit or walking in the flesh. And what we've got to decide is who and what we're going to do. So those are really important distinctions um, to make. Uh, the next question is, wouldn't the following virtues be fruit of righteous living? Compassion, contentment, sexual purity, forgiveness, generosity, work ethic, humility, obedience, integrity, honesty, etc. Uh, the answer to the question is yes. Those would all be fruits of righteous living. However, now again, I, I, I want to be sure that you don't divorce the living from the spirit because we can't even demonstrate righteousness of any kind or any good fruit without the power of the Spirit living in us. In Romans chapter 8, we talked about this in our study, not yesterday, but the Sunday before. The name that Paul gives the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of life. Think about that. The Spirit of life. And so if the Spirit of life, His life is in me, then I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to be content. Paul says it's not normal or natural. We have to learn the secret of being content. I'm going to want to be sexually pure because I want to honor the Lord. I'm going to want to forgive. Even though my flesh doesn't want to forgive somebody who's hurt me, I'm going to want to forgive because I realize that I've done much worse to God and He eagerly forgave me. And generosity is really important today because if we're generous, then uh, we're in a position where God can bless us. Solomon writes that a generous man himself will be blessed. So generosity ought to be something that we all strive for. Not strive in our own strength, but strive in the power of the Spirit. I like that you included work ethic in your question because um, Christians ought to be hard workers. Paul talks about his ministry 
uh, as being hard, hard work. It doesn't mean he's, he's suffering for Jesus. It just means that he's working hard at what he's privileged to do. And when we work um, as Christians, we ought to do the best that we could. You know, a, a, every Christian ought to be the best employee of their place. Everyone. Every Christian ought to be there on time. Every Christian ought to be there um, um, with, his, with, with the right attitude, uh, not struggling in with a cup of coffee, uh, rubbing his eyes or her eyes at the, when the morning shift begins. But instead, ready to go, full of the Spirit, because we get to be a light for Jesus at work. You ought to be so dependable that your bosses are coming to you and asking you, is there any more that you know like you? And that's a good thing. Uh, I'm going to wait for the second question because uh, we're coming to the end of this first half of the program. Let me tell you a quick story. Uh, we have a whole bunch of our kids that, that have worked at uh, Chick-fil-A here in town. And as soon as they start working there, they're always asking, are there more like you? And, and their answer is, yeah, we got a whole church full of them, so they keep bringing. And we've had these kids going through high school, now they're in college, and now they've left Chick-fil-A, but we've got this whole new stream of kids going. And they would hire anybody that we would send to them because these kids know how to work. They work with joy because they are demonstrating a great work ethic. Their parents taught them, but the Holy Spirit empowers them. So, A.A., we'll get to your second one, or your last one, uh, on the other side of the break. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. 340-9585 for your live calls, or 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program it's monday and we would love your live calls and questions at 340-9585 i'm in the middle of a series of questions from aa so let me get this last one uh, out of the way uh, A.A. asks, is it fair to say that born-again Christians who follow Jesus in truth and spirit demonstrate all these traits? If someone finds it difficult or impossible to clothe themselves in these characteristics, are they not born again? A.A., that's a really difficult question. You know, um, I, I think our best standard of measure is Paul's first letter to the churches in Corinth. Um, the entire letter is a letter of rebuke, a letter of scolding them. If you, if, if, if you get that sense, I do every time I read it, it's like, you know better than this and that you're doing all these things. And they were failing in every way, but the entire letter is dealing with them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. So he calls them brothers. We know they're saved, but what's happening is they're walking not according to the Spirit, but according to the flesh. And the answer to your question A is that Every believing Christian who is walking and led by the Spirit of God is going to be those traits, to be sure. It doesn't mean to be easy. Our flesh is stubborn, and if your flesh is like stuff, and it doesn't give up easily. So it's not easy to do. The, I told our church yesterday that, that the answers are simple to find. The difficulty is in the applying those answers, because our flesh is stubborn and strong. So, it's not fair to say that it's simply difficult or impossible to clothe themselves in the characteristics of fruit of the Spirit. It's not possible to say they're not born again. You can say you're living if you're not born again. Or you're living like an unsaved person. Or you're living like you used to live before you profess Christ. We can ask them, are you really saved? It's the Holy Spirit's job and requires the Holy Spirit's power to walk in, in, in those attributes and in those fruits of spirit. Let me also say this. Even though we are born-again Christians, today, this is for you and it's for me. And for everybody who's listening, no matter how born-again we are, if we're not walking according to the spirit, if we're not with Jesus, we're going to look ourselves more like unbelievers and believers. Our flesh doesn't get better. It's not, not uh, an improved 
carnal nature. It's always terrible, our flesh always stinks, and it's always terrible, so and the only way we can defeat the flesh is by the power of the Spirit. So my point is simply that if we're not walking with Jesus, if we're not with Him, we're going to mess up. There's a lot of reborn believers who mess up. Now, what do we do? How do we identify who's really saved and who's not? It's how we respond when we mess up. It's how we respond. Even the Apostle Paul said, I'm the worst of all sinners, the chief of sinners, King James says. And so when we sin and somebody brings it to our attention, how do you respond? And this is a question only people can answer themselves. It's not something I can judge them. But when somebody says, you shouldn't talk like that, and they get immediately defensive, or when somebody says, you know, you, you need to forgive those people of virtue, and they get really angry. Well, that might be because they're not born again. So what we've got to do is understand the difference between when we're in the spirit and when we're in the flesh and respond accordingly. Thank you very, very much. Um, here's a question from, let me... Our email inbox from dot dot. I miss you. You used to call in and write in a little bit, and um, it's good to hear from you again. Uh, dot says my Sunday school class, a homebound class, has been studying serving. If I'm missing a way of serving God, who was certainly obviously a taught to the disciples and blessed to us, when it then I Jesus with none should perish, but at times it's hard to tell me the person's interested or to just plain devil's advocate. He says, um, I just hear a lowest voice, self gives him away. You're right, God, self gives him away. God uh, is visually there, very blind, she says. It's learning and growing. That demonstrates that for you, you continue to serve. You're continuing to serve, and you will continue to learn, and you'll continue to grow. So, yeah, witnessing is a way of serving God. Uh, it's something that we're all called to do. Sadly, it's something that too few of us really do. But it is, it is clearly uh, something that we are, are told to do. Jesus washed feet uh, in the upper room just before going to the cross as if to say, this is so important, I'm going to give you an example that you should go and do likewise. So, so serving is important. Witnessing is just one way to serve. Now, witnessing isn't serving for the benefit of the body. Witnessing is to uh, bring up to those who are unbelievers and making them believers. They're right. God wants that none should perish. Uh, for those, by the way, who misuse God's sovereignty and say, well, you can't miss God's will. Uh, God's will clearly that we should perish, and yet we know that multitudes uh, throughout history I haven't continued to perish because we rejected the news of Jesus Christ. But we serve the pleasure of the Lord. And we did also do. Paul said in his little defining one that he says that we acted in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of everything we have advised. So witnessing is just one way of doing certain not the only way that we can serve. Now, in your situation, uh, you should have a home now. Um, in the word, 
Scotland work. That means if they can mildly contributioners of moment passer, it's time to leave. They're not going to change what they do or, or how they um, um, offer the church. Uh, the Jesus saying the Bible says we should teach. It's time to leave the church. Uh, it's time to leave church when heresy, false doctrine enters. Uh, it's time to leave church when you're not being fed. Uh, having said that, when I say not being fed, I mean not growing. You know, for a church to be vibrant and alive, it's got to be a church that you with the teaching of the word. It's got to be a church that offers you opportunities to use your gifts. Those things don't exist when you're in a church that is Now, having said that, we need churches to Every single one from the church do not have a Satan singing about the other and some are in the Um, Paul says that in his letter to the Hebrews. So, um, go find a church and get by there. Is there a church that suits your style, your personality, as long as the woman's being taught, as long as there are opportunities for you to use the gifts that God is giving you serving, then sit and say. Too often, we sending out for a while, a few months goes by, a regular try to you, and soon as you're certain of their power, stripped of, uh, of, of, of the, the, the heart to serve, because they don't stay in one place long enough. And if you stay in one place, if you serve where you are, then God is free to move you as he sees fit, instead of you moving yourself. We have a saying here, and we've sent a lot of people out to start churches. We've planted, I think, 26 churches uh, out of our church. And um, some are sent. We see the, the hand of God upon them. We see uh, the calling of God in their life. Uh, some just get patient, and they went. So there's sent, and there's went. And those who just went, and I know that's bad English, but those who just went, uh, they're the ones who produce very little fruit and don't stick to to uh, what it is they say God's called them to do. So we should all go find a church where the Bible's being taught and sit there and learn and grow and be a blessing to the people around us. Rather than expecting them to be a blessing to you, be a blessing to them. And watch how quickly God will entrench you in people's hearts and their, uh, them in your heart. And you sit and much, much fruit will be produced. Doesn't have to be the perfect style. Certainly doesn't have to be the perfect church. But find a church and plant and stay there for a while. That's one of the reasons I tell people when they call in this radio program, we don't want anybody to change the church. If your church is a good church, uh, if your church is teaching the word, not preaching it or talking about it, but really teaching the word, if you've got a chance to serve the people of God, well, then stay where you are. Don't leave where you are and go somewhere else. On the other hand, uh, there are times, Lewis, when we have to change because they're simply not going to be a church that is governed by what the Bible says a church ought to do. Um, thanks, Lewis. But your, your question gives me one opportunity to, to sort of um, um, tout a Bible study that's coming up this Friday uh, in the book of Acts with the end of chapter 2 uh, in this coming Friday night's Bible study. Uh, and, and we're going to study, starting in the 42nd verse of Acts chapter 2, God's model for church. It's so simple. It's not difficult at all. All we have to do is... Um, Follow the model that he's already given us. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Tony. Uh, who are the two disciples that John is talking about in John 137? John 137, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. I need to get to my Bible to see what that was. Give me just a second. John. Okay. When, Jesus, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Uh, that would be uh, John, uh, the, 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 the author of the book, and his brother James, or it could have been um, Andrew. Um, actually, I know it's Andrew because verse 40 says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, uh, was one of the two who heard what John had said and followed Jesus. So we know that it's John 
and Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, uh, and the one who said to them, uh, look, the Lamb of God, that was John the Baptist. They were all disciples of John the Baptist. So I hope that uh, answers your question. Um, don't want it to be confusing to anybody at all. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. I understand we're having some technical difficulties. I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, we're experiencing some noise over the air. We apologize for it. And we have some texts, of which I am not one, who are working on it. So please be patient and bear with us. Uh, Kenneth wants to know, Pastor Ron, describe what you think about the state of the church in the United States. Uh, Kenneth, the state of the church in the United States both thrills me and uh, breaks my heart. I guess it's like a, a parent with children. You know, when you have kids, you love them to death and, and you're thrilled with what God is doing. Uh, but at the same time, there are times when they fail and they break your heart. So uh, I think currently the state of the church in the United States, we have to remember that Jesus said it's his church and he will hold us to the end, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we have to remember that, Kenneth, when it looks at times like there is, I think the church in the United States is going to be tested as never before. I think we're coming into a time when uh, we are going to be persecuted just by virtue of having faith in Jesus Christ, by holding on to biblical principles. And I think what's going to happen, it's sort of like God picking the church up in this part of the world and just shaking us, and we're going to see who falls out of the cracks. And he's going to put us down. The church is going to be smaller, but it's going to be immensely more powerful. I think we have a church culture that doesn't emphasize holiness. I think we have a church culture, Kenneth, that that has become more entertainment often than it is um, a focus on who Jesus is in his word. Uh, I think we focus more on personalities in our church culture than we do uh, on the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and I think it's, it's sort of a, uh, what I call church light. Uh, we want people to make us feel good. We want people to meet our needs. Uh, we become consumers rather than disciples. Uh, and I think all of that um, uh, does not bode well for a whole bunch of Christians in the United States Christian Church. Uh, I think we have been sold a bill of goods that God wants us to be healthy, happy, and wise. And no problem should come. I'm teaching on suffering for the next two uh, Sundays here in Romans chapter 8. Uh, and, um, you know, most of the church just say, no, if I'm, I, I'm not, I don't want to suffer. We want all of the good stuff, but we don't want to share in, his, in the fellowship of his sufferings, as Paul tells us that we are privileged to do. So I think basically we're a bunch of lightweights. And uh, even as I say that, um, I'm privileged to pastor, and I know there are plenty of other churches and pastors who would say the same thing, but I'm privileged to pastor a group of people uh, who are so committed and they put their money where their mouth is. I mean, they're putting everything on the line, putting everything at risk for what they believe God has told them to do. Uh, the teachers who serve here and have served for a very, very long time. This is the first year we have any new teachers. Uh, people move and things change. But but um, uh, we have three new new staff members and, and they come in here and they understand they may not get paid. Some don't want any pay because it's what God's called them to do, and they do it full-time. Uh, multi-medical, the, the, the sacrifices Dr. Peter and Dr. Sheba make, doctors can make a lot of money, but they're working for very little money because we have a free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office. Uh, and I get to work with people like that. I get to see people who are really committed to putting the words of Jesus, the words of our gospel, the words of the Bible into action every single day. And they really are concerned about the lost and they're not worried about what people are going to think of them. So what we have to do is remember that God always has his own and we get to be a part of the greatest thing on this planet and that's the church of Jesus Christ. One more thing, Kenneth, it breaks my heart. When I hear people who identify as Christians saying, well, you know, I'm busy. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. It's like, well, let me see um, how much I can get away with and still be saved instead of how, how deeply can I commit to and connect to the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, if Jesus is at church and the book of Revelation chapter one says he is, he's in the middle of the seven candles. If Jesus shows up here every Sunday 
every Wednesday, every Friday, whenever we meet, why wouldn't we want to be here? Now, no guilt trips. I'm not saying everybody has to be in church every time the doors are open. We have lives. We have families. I understand. God understands those things. But why would any Christian not want to go to church? And for the people who say, well, church, I got hurt in church. Remember, you have no feelings. You have no rights. You're a servant of God. We're dead people walking around. Dead people don't get their feelings hurt. I think sometimes it's our perspective of church that opens us to those kinds of hurts and pain. So, Kenneth, I am hopeful. Uh, I truly believe we're in the very last days. And I'm hopeful because I think when the shaking out occurs over these um, political correctness issues, I think when the persecution begins simply because we say we're Christians, because we say this life is wrong or, or this is the way we have to live or only Christians go to heaven, I think when that shaking out is over, I think the church in this country will be infinitely more stronger than it is right now. So thank you very much for your question. Here is a question from Lewis from our email inbox. He says, how can I respond when someone asks, how can you say no one ever said life as a Christian would be easy when Jesus said so in Matthew 11.30? Also, I've heard people say you don't need to rejoice or be happy when you're going through a trial, but God does tell us in James chapter 1 that we, when we are to consider trials pure joy. Uh, Jesus didn't say that life would be easy. He said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He also promised in this life you'll have great, great trials. So we need to balance the scripture out, Lewis. Uh, when someone says, um, Jesus said, doing it my way is easy, doing it your way is hard. That's what Matthew 11.30 is all about. And by the way, that's the only autobiographical um, screen we have of Jesus. Jesus. It's his easy, his mind. What he's telling us is that the, the, the burden that we're carrying are the heavy burdens. Those are the ones that cause us so much pain. So Jesus never said that. They need to start they need to read all of their Bibles, not just take something out of context. Also, um, when you say you've heard people say you don't need to rejoice or be happy when you're going through the trial. Uh, but God tells us in James that they, we're to consider trials pure joy. He didn't say they are pure joy. We're to consider them pure joy. It's like when Paul says, for it has been granted unto you. He's writing to the Philippians. It's been granted unto you suffering. The idea there is as a gift to suffer and share in the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. He didn't say the suffering's fun. It's not going to be uh, uh, joyful. But what's joyful is what comes out of the trials, what those trials, what those tests produce. Peter says the trials that we encounter in this life are more precious to us than gold. So we consider them, we count them. That's why faith is necessary, Lewis. We count them pure joy, even when we're going through uh, difficult things. You know, I, I have been really blessed by the Lord, and, and we go through relatively um, um, few and relatively small trials. Uh, Twenty-two and a half years as a pastor here, and 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 we've been compared to other ministries and uh, other Christians relatively trial-free. Um, I was complaining this morning to the Lord a little bit because my body was hurting. You know, yesterday I, I, I get stiff standing a long time, and and I, I thought, oh Lord, I'm not feeling good today. And then I thought, but I'm not in Houston. I'm not underwater, so I can take my trial and say it's not as difficult as what others are going through, and you're sustaining them, Lord, you'll sustain me. Uh, I've gone through medical issues this year for the very first time in my whole life, and those are really, really hard things for me. I didn't get angry at God. I didn't say, why is this happening? What I said, and Paul and I would talk about this, bless her heart, she's such an encourager to me, but, but what we talked about was, well, we want to honor God through these trials. This is where our faith and what we've been teaching for all these years gets put to the test. This is where we put our money where our mouth is. 
So when you're in a trial, you consider it. It's not joyful. It's not fun. It's not easy. But you consider it that way because Jesus is with you. And I can tell you, Lewis, the only way I found my joy in the middle of all that pain and, and uncertainty was knowing beyond any doubt that my Jesus was right there with me the whole way. I went into a, an operating table. I'm 66 years old. I've never been operated on. And for the very first time I had that experience, I can promise you that Jesus was in that very cold room with me. And he kept me warm. That's the way we do it. But life isn't easy. It's never going to be easy. Jesus makes it easier. And Jesus brings joy, even in the middle of despair. So read Jesus' words in context. It's very important that we get that right. Um, let me see if I get a quick question. Uh, here's what I can do quickly. Uh, Evelyn says, I listened to John MacArthur and heard him say that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. Do you agree? Evelyn, I do not agree. The Bible does not agree. Uh, I, I admire what John MacArthur has done um, in his service for the Lord. I admire the, the lengthy legacy of fruit that he's produced. Um, but he's got some blind spots, and this is one of them. Uh, his um, systematic theology... Uh, determines what the Bible says instead of letting what the Bible says determine a systematic theology. And this is one of those places. There's no place in Scripture that indicates even remotely that the gifts of the Spirit are not for today. Now, the sign gifts, uh, the gifts of the apostles, the, the healings, the miraculous healings, the, the blind being given sight, those kind of things, um, those sign gifts were pointing to Jesus. We already know him. So those kind of gifts. But the gifts of the Spirit that we find in our New Testament, Corinthians and Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4. Those gifts are still for today and very much in operation. Thank you for the question. Hey, good program today, good questions. You've been listening to the Word Send On for Life. God bless you. I'll see you tomorrow at 4. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.